Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Okay, well, uh, okay, so we've talked about the victim, we've talked about uh, the friend, now let's talk about the church. Okay. And. this is a tricky question to ask because I'm making an assumption. It may be a bad assumption, but the assumption is is that someone who gets into this situation, in many cases, probably also has established some distance from the church. So the church is not a natural place for them to go or even think about going. Um, and maybe they've walked away from the church. They were involved at one point in their life, but their life circumstances and what they got through their they're, um, they've distanced themselves from the church, mm-hmm. what could be for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. A- and so the idea of going to a church as a part of a solution just either doesn't enter their heads or isn't likely to enter their heads, which produces a double problem because one person who's the victim may not think, I can get help at a church and so what doesn't go there. But then there's also the condition of the, how the church responds to someone who shows up who hasn't been at their church and hasn't been associated with their church, so right. why should they uh, become involved, that kind of thing. So I, right. I painted a, a pretty cloudy picture, so uh, take us through the fog. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it is cloudy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, you have, um, uh, as you stated, we have that person who has distanced themselves from the church, but we have to look at the underlying reasons why they've distanced themselves from the church. Number one their experience is based on either their own mother or family, grandmother, someone they've known, their aunt, someone Mm. took them to church. Mm. And that person, for whatever reason, either they they don't like them, they're thinking they never want to be a part of an institution like that. Mm -hmm. And that may be a reason why they don't go. So they now are at the point where they have to make a decision. Their friend has now said, mm-hmm. come with me to my church. You'll get help there. Mm-hmm. Now, they come and they find out in the bureaucracy of the church that there are steps. Mm-hmm. You can come, but you have to write. We have to register you. Mm-hmm. That means they have to put their name down. Mm-hmm. There has to be a commitment on their part. Mm-hmm. And there may be even some type of financial responsibility or requirement. Um, secondly, there will be a requirement even for going to classes or, or having to um, uh, take part in whatever uh, program that the church is offering. Hmm. Again, we have to realize we have people who do not have the skills even necessary to be a part of these mm-hmm. these environments, and they don't have the social skills. They may not be dressed appropriately. Mm-hmm. So we have all of these self-related issues that prevent um, the person from going in, and they they pose as barriers. They're mm-hmm. just they're thinking, no, I I, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so the church has to first of all go over that hurdle. Come as you are. And although it sounds good and it, it, we say it, well, there are people sitting in the pews who aren't agreeing with the words that they hear mm-hmm. come as you are. They're thinking, no, we have a protocol here and you have to look a certain way, you have to be a certain way, and mm. this is what we need. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that, that's, that's one challenge. The other side of it is there's shame. I, my mother, especially mothers, mm-hmm. my mother 
didn't like him in the first place. She already told me this would end badly. Mm-hmm. And this is my mom's church. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to go to my mom's church with this mm-hmm. because my mom already has told all of her friends that mm-hmm. this is the situation. Mm-hmm. And so another barrier mm-hmm. that we have to overcome. So again, uh, the underlying issue, if I had to say there was one, we have to help people understand that you can make a mistake but you can also recover from that mistake. Hmm. And we as a church body, um, all things being equal, should be able to help you with that. So the hope is, is that the church would produce an environment that ends up being helpful, but sometimes that, uh, that isn't the case. What are the kinds of – you've already suggested this a little bit, but what are the kinds of mistakes that a church makes in, in attempting or in thinking about ministering to people who are caught in this situation? What are the common things that you see? The um, churches, especially large churches, the bureaucracy of the large church sometimes makes it complicated uh, to the point where the person feels they're not hearing me and they're not seeing me. Hmm. They're not caring about me. So they're taking you take uh, you're being referred down the ladder to someone rather than the head pastor, for example. And oh so, yes. And and as you're being passed along, um, the sense is, uh, well, this isn't really uh, helping me. Right. I mean, it's not just the senior the senior pastor who delivered the best teaching message you're going to hear, mm-hmm. but the administrative pastor now passes you on to the next person, next uh, administrator, who gives you to someone else, Mm -hmm. who sends you to someone else, Mm -hmm. and now finally you get another person who says, you know, I don't have time today, can we make another appointment, but you're in crisis right now. Wow. That's – and so I think think we need to understand that. And even when our churches try not to do that, sometimes it still comes across that way because, again, by the time the victim – gets the nerve and the courage to say, I'm a victim, they want the help right now. It may have taken weeks for them to get to that point. So to hear, come back, and we can see you in 10 days, Mm -hmm. that's just not, that's not the expectation. You know, it's interesting because you sit there and you say, it took a person a very, very long time to take the step of deciding, okay, I'm going to opt for change. I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to tell someone about it. And that person is in a very vulnerable position once they make that decision. Yes. yes. And, and so to put off the, that vulnerability and to make them deal with the uncertainty of that vulnerability even longer when it took them such a mammoth effort to get to the point of saying, I'm going to be vulnerable and make the move to change, it does nothing but, but make the situation even more dramatic and traumatic for the person. Yes. Think of, the, think of it as an open wound. Mm-hmm. And so the wound is open, but instead of helping that, that wound to heal, having some type of salve or cream mm-hmm. to cover it, you put salt in it, mm-hmm. and it burns. Mm-hmm. And so that really is the effect that it has hmm. on that victim. Hmm. So um, uh, so let, let's, assume, let's assume the best. Uh, okay. <laughs> let, let's assume that the church picks up the ball, okay. you know, the pitch out comes and the, they take hold of it and they dive in. Uh, what, what is the, the key question to ask now is what is going to be asked of the church? I mean, if they take this on, what do they need to recognize they are taking on? They need to recognize that they are taking on an entire system. A family system. Most times it's not just that victim that's there. So if there are children, if there are 
pets, financial challenges, the church has a responsibility. I've heard you mention the dog or cat twice now. I I'm, cur- I'm curious. <laughs> How does that work? <laughs> the, the alcoholic person, the, vic- mm-hmm. the abuser mm-hmm. comes in. The dog either whines, the dog comes under their feet, the cat is right there on the bed, but this is my domain. There's some type of violence inflicted on that pet. And now the children are upset or the victim is upset and tries to defend. And that just makes the situation worse, exacerbates that whole situation. Hmm. And now there's more violence. Hmm. So the, the abuser at times now is punching holes in the walls or, the, or those who are in the room or those who are around are throwing things to exert power. It's a volatile situation. It's explosive. Hmm. And so that's that. <laughs> That's what happens, and um, I dare say I, I can't tell you the number of times that I've had to even work through those situations. But coming back to the, now the person is at the church, what do we do? A lot of times uh, churches now are starting to put together resources and to collaborate with their local communities. Hmm. So. Um, we don't want to say that everyone has a crisis management program in a church, mm-hmm. but they do know enough resources. So they're they're connecting people with you know utilities. Um, mm-hmm. You'd be amazed at the number of people who are in the dark at home, hmm. kids who go to school every day, and no one knows that there are no lights on in the home. Now we all we are starting to learn there's no food in the home oftentimes, mm-hmm. but we don't know there are no lights on or running water, which is against the law in most states, but. We don't hear that. So that means not only kids probably not going to school, but even if they are going to school, they may not be able to do their homework. Absolutely. And they can't do their homework because of what they heard last night Mm -hmm. or what they may have witnessed last night or been a part of last night. Mm. And I think um, that's probably another discussion to talk about (laughs) (laughs) what happens to the children, but oftentimes... uh, we have a lot of our abusers who may turn and say, you know, you, you, they didn't say, they wouldn't say you messed up. They mm-hmm. say they'd use other much mm-hmm. more flowery language, mm-hmm. but they would say, and your punishment is to give me the daughter mm-hmm. or the son. Mm-hmm. Depends on the situation. Yeah. And um, now that, that, um, that child becomes a victim. And that's so that's serious. what you mean by a system is the fact that you're actually dealing not just with the with with the um, abuser and his victim, yes. but the abuser, the victim, and anyone who's related to the victim who's aware of what's going on. Yes, they're that's all right. in play. They're all a part of this. Mm-hmm. And then you also have now you have the victim's family or others who may want to come in as the protectors, and they'll say, "Come with me," or they'll try to come in and and change that situation. But now uh, the abuser is saying, "You know, I, you know, basically, I own. This is my space. This is my domain. Mm-hmm. I am the head." and you can't do it. So there are all these there are all these issues, and so. Well, we will come so. back down the road and deal with uh, with um, how this impacts kids and how to how to minister to the.
kids part of this because okay. this obviously is part of the equation. And one of the things we do with our topics is we do loop back. So we'll okay. plan to do that. So I've, right. I've de- we've got a date in the future. All righty. Um, now, now let's talk about how how you um, minister to the person who's caught in abuse. Obviously, mm-hmm. you're dealing with a, a system thing, but what are the issues that you can anticipate coming up? As you are wrestling with um, with this area from the person who's the who's the direct victim, if I can say it that sure, way. Sure, sure. Um, as the church counselor, mm-hmm. the person comes in. The first thing you want to do is you want to give that person permission to tell their story, hmm. um, and listen to the story without interruption. Without interruption, mm-hmm. really patiently let them know that. You care about them more than anyone else right now, and you want to hear the entire story. Hmm. Um, the From there, after they share that story, you want to check in with them. How do they feel emotionally about sharing it? Hmm. And most times, uh, you don't even have to check in. You can see they're yeah. afraid, uh, looking over their shoulders, wondering at any moment something is not going to go well here because hmm. of me sharing my story. So. Um, they share. Um, after that, a lot of times, uh, and I know I have asked, what is your plan after they've shared their story? Mm-hmm. Another question is, how are you coping? How have you coped? Mm-hmm. You want to ask them open-ended questions rather than yes or no related questions because if we get those, we, we, we can't make progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of times with open-ended questions, the victim gets to hear themselves share what is happening hmm. so that they can now have a more, um, a stronger experience with what's happening to them. They're not detached now. They hmm. have to share it and take ownership. Hmm. So that's what we try to do. And the issues that you that you see, I mean, I, I've, I've, we've obviously got some notes here that we're looking at. And it's, yeah, I see a phrases like identity, self-esteem, yeah. uh, self-esteem self-efficacy, sure. and uh, those kinds of things. What are you, what are you raising when, you, when these issues come up? What's the victim having to deal with? With, the, with self-esteem, we want to see just how well that person views themselves. Mm-hmm. How, what, what's, what's their assessment of their own value mm-hmm. and their own self-worth? Do they, do they feel good about themselves? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we find they don't. Mm-hmm. They, and no one worse, or sadly, no one has ever shared good things about them. Mm-hmm. And even if they have, because of mistakes they've made in the past, that they've changed their own assessment. Of, of who they are. Which means that they sometimes can blame themselves for the situation that they're in rather than seeing that they've been – I mean, they sense that they've been wrong, but they don't really, in some senses, think that they've been wrong because they feel like, well, I'm not worthy or worth I'm – get, I'm getting what I deserve. Is that is there, Can there be that kind of element in, in the equation? They often blame themselves hmm. and often feel that it's their fault that they're in the situation. If I was pretty enough, mm-hmm. if I had lost the baby weight from the last baby, he would love me more. Hmm. Um, and sadly, I, I've, I've heard mm-hmm. comments like that. Um, that's that's uh, that's one view that they have, but with self-efficacy, that's that's another um, part of this equation. And with the self-efficacy, do they even believe in themselves and believe in their abilities to do something well? Mm-hmm. Do they have what it takes? And a lot of times, again, they've been told you don't 
you don't have what it takes. And, you, and you that leads to a hesitation to do anything about it because if they're out on their own and they think, well, I can't function on my own, I have to have someone who can protect me. Or I dropped out there. of school at 14. Mm-hmm. I dropped out of school at 16, mm-hmm. 17, and we have so much of that in mm-hmm. our, our public school system today. Mm-hmm. They're, they're thinking they don't have the skills. Mm-hmm. And again, um, the audience may say, well, they can work. They can go to school. They can do this. I did it. My mother did it. We all did it. Mm-hmm. Well, that may be, but it's complicated in their environment and with no one supporting them or very few people around them to do that. They're not thinking they can. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Hmm. So, um, uh, so self-efficacy, you have a sentence in here that's interesting. It says, self-efficacy is known to be an ec- excellent predictor of behavior. Yes. So yes. What, is, what exactly does that mean? When we think about, do I believe I can do something? Mm-hmm. If the person doesn't think they can, if everyone has told them they can't, they can't do anything, they'll never be anything, they'll never accomplish anything, and oh, by the way, the things that you did do, you didn't do well, mm-hmm. all of those things become something that affects, adversely affects their decision-making and how they view themselves. It's like added chains on the person. Yes. So weights that really pull them down. And and so because of that, it leads to depression. Mm -hmm. It leads to other negative emotions. And so uh, oftentimes people will self-medicate. Or if they don't self-medicate, they they will go into withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And so once this happens, it's just this downward spiral that in fact affects how someone might be able to now, respond. Now, you used the phrase self-medication and I'm mm-hmm. going to press you here. Are you talking about are you talking about resorting to drugs and that kind of thing? Yes, I am. Okay. No, yes, I, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> okay. To numb the effects of my failure. Right. Okay? Yeah. And uh, then then if we include the alcohol along with that mm-hmm. to numb the pain of what I have to do in order to survive financially mm. this is this is where we are and so it, it, so you're describing a real cycle that takes place sure, that, that so sure. so that wherever there's domestic abuse you can be suspicious that there are other issues that also are coming alongside of it and it may the domestic abuse may it does in some senses it doesn't matter what's the cause or the effect there's a there's a big 
dysfunctional situation that's happening. Yes, and in some cases, the, cy- the cycle has been going on for so long, mm-hmm. some people don't even recognize that as abuse. Hmm. They don't recognize it as a problem. They think that this is the way it is for everyone. In fact, the sideshow, which is, is seen as a means of relief, is actually contributing to making the situation worse, but they think it's a solution as opposed to being part of the problem. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Well, um, uh, so so we've got churches that are going to uh, deal with uh, deal with this, and and really you're talking about coming alongside in a significant way. It's going to take time. It's going to take energy. It's not something that it, it's going to take. Um, I, I like to think of counseling sometimes when it's really in a serious mode. Is it, from from an efficiency standpoint, in one sense, this is not from the standpoint of the person you're ministering to, mm-hmm. but just your own time management. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's going to be a very inconvenient kind of ministry, and the person's not going to tell you at two forty-five tomorrow uh, I'm going to have a need, and we can schedule it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Or the person may not be willing to share on a particular day. Mm-hmm. You know, and and people, I, I often tell the students here, the one thing that we do what we do because we're called to try to help people face what they, they're dealing with mm-hmm. and, and change. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes, when you deal with people, it's messy. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> and, right. And we, do, we just have to face it. That's right. That, you know, today the sky is blue, but tomorrow is stormy outside, and that storm comes right into the counseling room. Well, let, let, uh, there are so many dimensions to this. The one we haven't mentioned yet, but that also is important, is how do you how do you deal with the information that you get? I mean, part of there are, there are, there are sometimes confidentiality Absolutely. commitments and that kind of thing. So, so what's that dimension of the equation? Well, I'm glad you brought up confidentiality in our informed consent mm-hmm. that we provide to anyone that we counsel by law, mm-hmm. we, we say there are limits to confidentiality. Mm-hmm. So that means if I feel that there is an intent to harm or you've been harmed in some way, that might limit the confidentiality agreement that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. I may have to share because uh, I, you know, we have to protect you and mm-hmm. safety is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. So um, we, we often we, we often um, have to share and but we we also have to wrestle with the comp, the consequences of that sharing. What will it mean for that particular client if we share? Hmm. And so in that case, instead of just making that decision, if it were me um, in practice like now, I would mm-hmm. I would consult with other counselors, with supervisor, others would be involved in that decision, possibly even the board if necessary. Hmm. Uh, wow. Right. <laughs> wow. So imagine the pastor. Mm-hmm. The pastor's not equipped to do that. Pastoral right. counseling, certainly. That's something that most most pastors can do. They can talk about Scripture. Mm-hmm. They can tell you what thus says the Lord about mm-hmm. you, about loving you, and, mm-hmm. and what should be available to you. But now when it comes to helping you who's sitting there with tears and possibly with visible signs of being harmed, mm-hmm. besides turning you over to the authorities, 
They don't necessarily know what to do. Well, that's the next question then. What should they do? When they realize they're out of their pay grade Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they're not equipped, but they know this person needs help, they can't just send them back to where they've come from, something's got to be done, what advice would you give to churches? I would say today that churches should automatically, uh, given our complex culture, in most urban cities especially, now start to view themselves um, as institutions that must go outside the walls. Hmm. We have, as a church, a bigger responsibility than to just address needs of of our members when they come into the church. Hmm. So there has to be some mechanism in place for follow-up. Go to the home. Let's see the space. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes we say, come into the office Mm -hmm. at the church, but you know, We've got to go to the home, hmm. and once you go to the home, get a better sense of what's happening there. And hmm. I will say that churches are reluctant, and oftentimes those elders, deacons, or whatever the leadership uh, structure is in the church, they're reluctant. We don't really want to get involved. Or mm-hmm. um, th- those people live in a different section of town mm-hmm. that we're ac- accustomed to going to. Yes. So we have to we have to now start to think differently hmm. as church. We we have to go outside. So um, uh, is there does there do there come times? Um, I think I know the answer to this question, but do do there come times when a church has to do uh, in effect a referral and say um, we're going to continue to care for you personally, but but. The, the, what you're dealing with is is beyond what any of us are capable of, of actually uh, managing from a per, from a counseling level. Um, so where do churches go? I think yes, the answer is yes. Churches can go and have that referral, child protective mm-hmm. services, if there are children mm-hmm. involved, um, a shelter such as a shelter here in the Dallas area mm-hmm. like uh, a women's shelter, Genesis mm-hmm. is one of our women's shelters uh, for domestic violence, um, Nexus, there, there mm-hmm. are a number of them. Uh, but I think where we're missing out uh, as a church is we refer but we wash our hands of it. We hand off rather yes. than stay involved. This is not a baton. Right, we're, right. You know, we're not yeah. in a relay. Right, right. So I think what we need to do as a church is say, we're going to either go with you or we want you to make this initial step, because I do think it's important mm-hmm. that the person make the step, but we're going to be involved with you and we're going to be supportive with you. Um, now I think the the what a, a lot of times what victims want is they want Big Brother to protect them or mm-hmm. make the decision for them, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that's the church's role. Mm-hmm. And we have to be very careful. We don't want to make decisions for people. There's a liability issue. Mm-hmm. Later they'll say, "But the church said I should do yeah. that." Wow. We never want want yeah. to to get involved there. But uh, I do think we need to we need to walk alongside. You know, when I was, when I when I led spiritual formation groups, uh, there was a period where we could take time to expose them to a variety of ministries, et cetera, and I had them walk. It's not – well, at the time, it wasn't three blocks away from the seminary. Mm. There's a a whole stretch of houses, shelters, abuse centers, drug Mm. abuse centers, et cetera, Mm. because I wanted them as pastors to know what the civic resources were that were available to them to say, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't operate in a vacuum. There are people who are trained to help people who are in these situations, and you need not to be afraid to go there and come along them and and sometimes I think 
pastors either by accident or some other way come into contact with these groups and recognize eventually that they exist. But I think it's important as a part of a pastor's training to understand that these groups exist sure. and to get to know a little bit about them, enough about them, so that if they need uh, their services in the context of ministry, they know how to work with them and know what to expect from them and know then what they, what they need to supply that they won't get from, from these uh, and through these organizations. Absolutely. The, the relationships have to be fluid, mm -hmm. and that's another part of going outside of the walls of the church. Mm -hmm. Let's not just go in and think. This is this is all we have to do. That's right. Well, it uh, th there are obviously many dimensions to this, and we, you know, it's as often the case. We've only just scratched the surface in terms of talking about this. But Michelle, I really do appreciate you coming in and talking with us about this and Thank helping you. us kind of get our hands around it. I'm going to ask a standard journalistic question to end this podcast, and that is: Is there okay. anything that we haven't said or haven't mentioned that you think we should say in the context of this conversation? Uh, that you'd want to say or and or encourage people about as we think about this area? Sure. Two things. Mm. For the victim, the victim needs to know this is not the end. There has to be encouragement and hope that is offered to that victim. And for the abuser, the abuser needs to know that grace can be extended and that there can be change, but there must be accountability. Finally, both parties need to know that domestic violence is an unacceptable behavior. Hmm. And that has to be stated in a way that they're clear that there, there aren't excuses, we can't rationalize it, we can't blame, we can't be in denial. It's just not acceptable behavior and that it affects more than just the two parties. Now, in, in your summary, you've raised an issue that we didn't cover that we probably should at least mention, and that is we've focused completely on the victim and the impact on the on those around it who are watching the victimization take place. Sure. But we really haven't talked about the one who causes the abuse very much. Sure. Uh, what advice? Obviously, if a church walks into a situation in which there's domestic violence, there are you know there's more than one player that they're concerned about. So. Sure. So what advice do you give to churches about how to deal with, approach, begin to broach, however you want to say it, mm -hmm. um, the situation that the abuser is in? Okay. I think for that person, since we start with the premise that domestic violence is unacceptable, now there has to be training. Mm -hmm. And perhaps no one has ever fully explained spiritually what the role of the man is in a mm -hmm. marriage. Mm -hmm. You are the head of household. Mm -hmm. But Ephesians 5 also says that you are to love your wife as if it were you. Mm -hmm. And um, most, most men don't, don't know that part of it. Uh, so I think – Okay, I'll just let that pass. I'll let that go right by me. Spiritual training. Uh -huh. Spiritual training uh -huh. is important, uh -huh. but beyond the spiritual training, we have, they have to know, too, that there has to be a plan for change. Mm. And that uh, they, they need to know that there could be legal ramifications if the behavior continues. Mm -hmm. A lot of times the abuser will say, it's changed. That was just a one-shot problem. I lost it. I lost my job that mm -hmm. day and just go right down the list of why they did it. But instead of just taking that at face value and forgiving that person, you have to check in with the victim. Mm-hmm periodically and make sure that, yes, change has taken, but also 
Um, if that abuser has come forward, chances are they do want to change in mm -hmm. some way. They just don't know how. That person also needs to be in treatment. Hmm. And there can't really be marriage counseling that takes place until that person finishes their treatment. Mm -hmm. So, and this is a situation in which it is important not just simply to say, oh, they confessed and I forgave them and walk away. You, if you're dealing with a behavior here that is so deeply ingrained, moving towards some form of counseling and or accountability is really pretty important, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. And, we, and, and that really helps to shape their, their um, level of responsibility that they probably haven't had in, in the past. Hmm. Well, like I said, you've just introduced the area for us at a real practical level. We 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 did a podcast earlier on just kind of the reality of domestic abuse and how sometimes what churches do, they hesitate to get involved because they feel like this is coming between uh, a man and his wife and sure. the church should be hesitant to do that. But sure. there, there are cases where this does happen and where those who are victims of abuse need the support of a larger community to come around them and encourage them and lift them out of the cycle, if you will. Yes. And you've helped us to think through the, those steps and those stages, and I really appreciate it. So thank you for being with us, Michelle. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And thank you for being with us here on The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.